1895, the state of Ohio had only two automobiles. And wouldn't you know it, they collided. <laughs> so, <laughs> who knows what kind of collision we're going to have in the days ahead. If you dare vote for a decree that God finds abominable and murderous, you will answer to him. God's curse is upon you. How dare you? How dare you? defy him. Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. When is the time for justice? The time is now. I'm tired of waiting for incremental solutions that never make any increments and never bring solutions. So when is the time for justice? It's now. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. If the court in a nation is the highest authority, then you've found a God. If the people are the highest authority, then you've found another God. If, if there's no transcendent law governing over this nation or any other nation, then you've found another God. It's never too early to learn that the government is a greedy piglet that suckles on a taxpayer's teat until they have sore, chapped nipples. Take the guns first, go through due process second. Please clap. Just as the church has an obligation to be Christian, just as the family has an obligation to be Christian, just so the school has an obligation to be Christian, and the state, and your calling, and the school, every area of life must recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio, an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and your enjoyment. Jesus is King. There is no neutrality, no exile, no surrender. My name is Jason. I'm here back with my co-hosts, Jordan and John. How are you? What up? Doing awesome. You guys are doing good. This is season two. I want to first just say thank you to all our listeners. Thank you for all your feedback. Thanks for um, just tuning in and encouraging us. Thank you for your support. You can find our pages on Facebook, Cross and Crown Radio, Cross and Crown Church. And uh, yeah, here we are for season two. It's been a while, so thank you for your patience. Uh, some of us had a lot of things going on. We told you we'd be back. Yeah, we're back. How, um, how many houses did you sell? <laughs> yeah. Let's not get into that right now. Yeah, Jordan may or may not have been busy with... Uh, Know, the Real estate market. tycoon activities. Yes, uh, but hey, look, we're all busy. We have jobs, a lot of stuff going on, but you know, we don't want to complain. We're happy to be here. I'm again, excited though. to be back. Well, going to do this every week again. Every week we have season two. We're going to plan for 12 episodes. We may have a break somewhere in there. I'm going to Africa in September, so I'll be busy, a little tied what up. What part of Africa are you going to? Zambia. All right. Going back to the University of Zambia actually to do some work there, uh, a Bible conference I'm putting on actually, so I'm really pumped about that. We'll talk more, maybe another episode about some of that, but look, I'm pumped tonight because we have a special guest who isn't on the phone, he's sitting right here with us. In studio. He is here in the flesh, and this is a really cool topic to talk about tonight because it is a much needed discussion. Um, 
Brother Joel McDermott, Dr. Joel McDermott, a friend of ours, is here in the studio with us. It's awesome. You doing all right, Joel? Oh, I'm great. Great. It's you, always amazing to be in the presence of a real theological innovator and an, in- <laughs> an inventor of theological terms. Yes. yes. Oh, goodness. And yeah. it starts. Oh, heavy, the hours heavy have been put into this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just making stuff up out of thin air. Mm. No, we... we I uh, lay on my pillow at night just thinking... <laughs> How can I innovate? How can I make up a new a new word, new label, just a new truth? Yes, new truth. Air, yes. You know. <laughs> I no. don't like to think of them as pulling them out of thin air, but making them materialize. Ooh, I like that. Of course, just <laughs> sort of a Houdini move, magically <laughs> happening. No, we, we're so excited to have you, Joel. Thank you for taking the time yes. to be here. Um, we want to spend the episode really just diving into a, com- a consuming fire. Mm. Uh, that's your new book that you came out with a few years ago. You wrote Bounds of Love, and Bounds of Love really was an introduction to theonomy. And, uh, of course, that caused no small stir. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. Talking, Perfect phrase. Yeah, no Take, small taken stir. Taken right out of the foreword. Yes. Uh, yeah, they. there was a lot of great content in the book. I loved it. Uh, I thought you did a great job. Of course, the, the small stir was the Karam principle. Yeah, and, and I, I'm... To this day, still a little bit surprised that, I mean, I expected some pushback on maybe these penalties don't end, wait a minute. And, and I certainly predicted feedback from certain quarters that uh, these are just non-negotiables. And it seems like there are people who got into theonomy uh, for the sole purpose of having a club to beat homosexuals with and, right. and a death penalty. It's less, this is the way we get rid of our political enemies. And, and so I, I kind of wanted to poke a stick in that eye. But... You know, I didn't expect it to be quite the pushback it was. Yeah. However, uh, it did give me the opportunity to really dive deep into this. I, I needed a reason to do it. It was a lot of work, a lot of uh, kind of writing, a lot of detailed writing about Levitical principles and stuff like that. So uh, I, I was glad it happened that way and that this book came out of it. Yeah. Well, I have it sitting here right in front of me, and I have been so busy prepping a new sermon series. I've only got the introduction done, but I'm mm-hmm. really, really excited to to read it because I know you put a lot of work into it, a lot of exegetical uh, work. It was a labor of love, no doubt, um, because I know this is something that you know you can't just overnight figure it out. You got to really put in the hours. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, really, we want to jump in, I think, and just, I know, Jordan, you have some questions. We've kind of been, you know, debating on what what should we cover, especially (laughs) when we only have an hour. So it's going to take, who knows, maybe it'll end up being two hours. But yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting discussion. And that's, you know, we can just we can just chat about it back and forth. But uh, first of all, have have you read the back cover of the book, Jason? Yeah, I did. It's got an interesting endorsement there. Some guy, Dr. John Frame. John Frame. As part of his endorsement, he says, quote, learned a great deal about God's covenants from this book. All right. If you're an author and a Christian theological author and John Frame says he learned something about the covenants, I mean, you can just quit right now. (laughs) Maybe I should. Maybe I should quit while I'm ahead. Sort of a mic drop. (laughs) No, that was uh, very, very gracious of him. He's uh, an abnormally gracious man to begin with. But uh, that was overly kind. I'll tell you a story about that. However, it was funny. I might have told you guys in private. I don't remember. But when he, uh, I first emailed him, said, "Hey, could you, you know, possibly provide a blurb for this?" He says, uh, "Well, you know, I'm getting close to 80 years old now, and <laughs> I'm retired from professoring. I'm definitely retired from poly- polemical theology, and so I, I, I don't know. But I'll try to look at it." And a few days later, I get this endorsement in an email, <laughs> and he said, "Well." 
It's funny because he said it again. He says, you know, I'm almost 80 years old, but I found this interesting enough and compelling enough to write a blurb for it. And, and here's what I wrote. And he said, feel free to edit this within the spirit of it. Yeah. So I wrote him back and I said, well, here's here's my edit of it. It's, this book was so awesome, it brought John Frame out of retirement just to endorse it. <laughs> wow, that's that a great, great story. And so just to get into the book a little bit on Karam, you know, let's just talk about, first of all, what is Karam? You know, there's a lot of listeners out there who may not have read your first book, The Bounds of Love. So let's just back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. What's the definition of, of Karam, Mr. Theological Innovator? Absolutely. No, I was going to say, especially since um, <coughs> reading some of the criticisms of Bounds of Love, a lot of the critics don't really seem to even understand the basic definition of care. So mm-hmm. that's an obvious starting point some anytime of them there's don't. a disagreement. Not, yeah. not all of them, true, true. But some of them, some of the more uh, and shrill even the, lines, even a few of the yeah. ones who do pick up on the meaning of the word then kind of deviate from it as they get into the meat of their criticism and what they want to say. I'm looking back on it. I think a lot of the criticism was, "Here's my opportunity to let McDermott have it," and for better or worse, mostly worse, it it went that way. But uh, karam is a Hebrew word. It's used somewhere near 80 times in the Old Testament. Its basic meaning is devotion, and there's a noun form in this, in Hebrew. Oftentimes, is there's a verbal form of it also. So there's the word devotion, and then Karam, it means to devote. Um, But it's a very special technical thing in the law. And as you study it out, you'll see this in the book, uh, Leviticus 27, verses 28 and 29, give us kind of the the only legal principle or judicial principle of it in the whole book. And it turns out to be that part of the law that regulates that which is most holy. Now, that sounds so, you know, given all the times holiness so shows up in God's law, you know, that sounds like it's such a small thing, uh, almost in passing. But in reality, it's crucial. It's central mm-hmm. to God's. And then when you get into the biblical theology of it, it starts in Eden, ends in Revelation, and it shows up all the way through. Mm-hmm. So the, the karam, there's the word karam, and then there's what I call the karam principle, which is kind of the theological principles built upon it. And it is contrasted right there in Leviticus 27 with what is called not devotion, but dedication. Uh, first of all, let me back up. To, you could devote things to the Lord. You could devote land. You could devote sheep or animals. You could even devote men and cities. And when you did that, it was in almost all circumstances, 99.9% of the time, devotion unto their destruction. Mm-hmm. Because when you're put into the most holy place of God, you can't stand before him without a covering. So this is also why animals could be devoted to God because they were oftentimes the sacrifices were by definition devoted as a substitute and they would be you know, slain and their blood spilled and their bodies burned and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in that same law, there is a set of laws for making something dedicated as opposed to devoted. And this, again, these are very, very uh, sleepy details, if you will, mm-hmm. but crucial to understanding what's going on in God's Old Testament covenant, Old Covenant economy. And uh, to dedicate something was to make it not most holy, but only holy. So if you dedicated a piece of property or an animal or some other thing, houses, they were declared Kodesh, holy. And that could actually be bought back at a later time in the future. It could be bought back with a 50 or 20% um, 
interest payment, mm-hmm. one-fifth. Uh, but devotion could never be redeemed. It was non-redeemable. So it was, you, you have these, and it corresponds to the, the building of the temple, that there was a holy place and then there was a most holy place. Uh, um, the priests could enter the holy place. Uh, a normal person could not, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the priest could not enter the most holy place. Only the high priest could and once, only once a year on the, the high day. So, I mean, all of these things work together. I'm, I'm going much further than what you asked for initially. Just what is the definition of karam? It means devotion as opposed to dedication. It, reg- it is the regulation of that which is most holy. And once that label is applied to something, and it's a judicial process or declaration from God in Scripture, then that thing becomes most holy. It is as if it were transferred immediately into the most holy place and becomes God's unredeemable property. So uh, that when this happens, uh, if it is a person, usually executed. And you, you see this principle pop up, like I said, 80 times in the Old Testament. You see it pop up in, in terms of legal principles uh, and usually as legal penalties. So, for example, if someone commits the sin of false worship by sacrificing unto another god, the, the English text we all have says, this person shall be utterly destroyed. But in the Hebrew, it literally just says, this person shall be karam or karam. Well, if you're a Hebrew translator and you're working through here and you say, well, this person shall be devoted... Well, that's a kind of a head-scratcher, isn't it? So you really have to have a theology of what this means. And th- there, there's a whole history of this that I go into in, in one of the chapters in the books as to why they went with utterly destroyed. But it's because when when someone is is devoted in a penal sense, it is almost automatically a death penalty. Hmm. Right. Um, so so that's, that's the basic definition. It means to devote, and to devote in this context is a technical term that means to render it most holy, which yep. has certain consequences based on the nature of the thing. Yeah. And so, so much of, I like how you point out right at the beginning of the book, as you sort of laying it out there, so much of the Bible is about a people being separated by from God Absolutely. by their sinfulness. And then this whole, you call it saga of how did these people get back close to God mm-hmm. without being killed, getting into his most holy presence mm-hmm. without being killed. And the Bible is just a story of that whole process playing out. Over and over again. And so one thing I wanted to hone in on is, so it starts out, uh, I guess you would call it very extreme in Deuteronomy and Levit- in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But as you go out through the prophets, you see certain changes start to happen. As you go first temple, second temple, you know God's presence leaving the second temple. So what is that transition that you're getting at of uh, the Karim uh, devoted to destruction, starting out very, uh, very extreme, I guess you'd call it, mm-hmm. and then ha- starting having a transition to not so much. Uh, that's actually a very interesting topic. Um, I, it, it becomes extreme under the Mosaic Covenant. I, I would. Now it's extreme also, in a sense, in Genesis already, because God puts the angel with the flaming sword there at Eden, and you can't mm-hmm. come in. And of course, many people don't realize this, but those angels with the flaming swords are replicated all through Moses. They're they're right there on the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Right. They're embroidered into the the curtain that divides the most holy place from the holy place. They're embroidered in the curtains of the temple itself, and then you have a layer of Levites standing outside uh, the temple that are empowered to kill anybody with the sword who gets too close. So this is this. This kind of deadly boundary is, is played all through the scriptures, but 
and, and as I said, it shows up in many of the death penalties for all what we might call loosely religious crimes. If you commit blasphemy, if you commit uh, uh, bearing the Lord's name in vain, if you break the Sabbath uh, and, and false worship, etc., etc. Uh, these all got a death penalty, but it wasn't just a simple justice death penalty. It was a karam death penalty. Mm-hmm. It was a ceremonial, mm-hmm. most holy place death penalty. But we do see this begin to change over time. Now, obviously, once the tribes are kicked out of the land, they can they don't have a temple. The, the old temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. They can't practice this, obviously, because they don't even have a most holy place. And they don't have the empowerment of God's presence there to do this from. So while they, this is, this is the mystery behind that passage that's always cited, by the way, by many like two kingdoms types that, that want to say that the Old Testament is a principle for us being pilgrims in the land today. And that's completely skewed. But, uh, you know, they, they cite that passage. I believe it's in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But he's, go into the city you're in. Seek the peace, seek of, the the city. peace of the city. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this, is, this was God telling them how to adjust to land, to, to life under a regime where they no longer have these powers. Mm-hmm. You don't even control the civil government at all, let alone have these these powers of, of uh, the jurisdiction to, for death penalties. Actual exiles, right? Actual, Jeremiah yeah, 29. Yeah, it's, it's completely different than our situation today. Seems, but that's, that's for like episode six of season two. Right, right. So, <laughs> now, yeah. um, the, but the other part of that is um, when you start to get to the return from exile, God starts speaking in different language and he starts giving different images to, and one of those is the second temple of Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. That that the most holy place in this thing is completely different. And I'm going to leave the surprise to the book to to go through those details. But if it was a literal most holy place, you'd have a building the size of you know Washington D.C. or something like that. I mean, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and by the way, I was just there today, and they have some buildings almost that big, mm-hmm. but not. It's not the quite. You were in Babylon today. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, Washington, D.C. <laughs> Temple of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. They did have the obelisk, so maybe there's something to that. <laughs> but uh, the, the real interesting one is when Nehemiah and Ezra come back. And, and this is maybe what your question is starting uh, springboarding from. Is that they they do, uh, what would you call, declare a karam when they call a certain national assembly. And they said anyone who doesn't show up, they, they will be pronounced karam. Well, now, under Moses' law, that would be an automatic death penalty mm-hmm. if you didn't show up. And there's no exception to it. It's automatic. It's it's inflexible. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but under Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they relax that penalty. And one of the reasons I think they do so is that even though they rebuilt the walls and even though they eventually rebuilt the temple, God's presence never filled that temple. Mm-hmm. And this was key to having the, the jurisdiction of the Most Holy there. The Most Holy One has to be there to hold court mm-hmm. for this to, to render uh, um, legal or lawful. So, and it's interesting, some of the rabbinical texts point out that there, were, there was no uh, presence. And this is Second Temple Judas, Judaism writings point out that there was no second, there was no presence in the Second Temple. There was no altar fire in the second temple because they knew God's not here. And so even though they did actually impose some of those death penalties, for example, on Stephen and others for, for the, the balance of most of that period, they did not. So, and they recognized their inability to do it. So I think that's one of the things that changes. And I think the new Testament writers pick up on this very clearly. And of course, when you get to acts two, you have a new temple, you have a new God's presence, altar fire and everything else. The tongues of fire on their heads is very clear what the new temple is. 
and it's not what the old one was. It's not the the land of Israel anymore. It's a wholly diff- whole different thing that is being administered from heaven, not from the land of Israel. So I think you see some very serious changes in this regard uh, with the New Testament economy when it comes to those death penalties and certain other aspects of the Old Testament law. Yeah, yeah. N.T. Wright does pick up on a lot of this, the themes of the return from exile. Oh, now this Jesus's. is all I need. I've got enough critics now, you're going to align me with N.T. Wright. <laughs> what is your view on justification? He's hit and miss, and when he's hit, he's a really good hit. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, but I mean, it's just, he traces those themes. I think he does a masterful job of tracing the themes in the New Testament of Jesus's declaration that the exile is over. Hmm. This is the new people of God. He's He is the faithful Israelite gathering the church, the new Israel, that sort of stuff. So, I mean, there's clear, a lot of this, and we can get into it, I think, later, but there's obviously a lot of discontinuity hmm. in redemptive history, and I think that's where the discussion yeah. really ends up playing out. And if we could, just to step back for one minute, if we go back to the case law for a moment, we were talking about what seemed to be more extreme back then. And so, obviously, when you look at um, a couple of examples, blasphemy laws, when you look at Sabbath death penalty laws, we can go and to those a bit. You make some interesting points about those. Sometimes um, we talk about mm. those laws as being only with, as you say in the book, high-handed situations right. would the full death penalty come. So what were you talking about in the book when you talked about No, that? absolutely not. I, I think you read the text as it's written. There's no wiggle room there. And it's not applied as certain people apply it that may call themselves Westminster theonomists or other things like that. Uh, that what they're doing is they're not actually exegeting scripture so much and applying it directly. They're going back into a tradition that was practiced during the time of the Westminster Divines, and really even much further back than that, that you could say historically was Christendom. The problem was it was just wrong. It was inherited from Rome, Mm -hmm. and it was to empower the, the church and the civil society to impose penalties for these things. And they could be fines, they could be whippings, they could be much more, all the way up to the death penalty. In, in extreme cases, okay. Now that's what a lot of people would like to return to, so that they, you know, they don't have to uh, kill the Sabbath breaker immediately. They can warn him and threaten him and all that kind of stuff until you get to the more extreme penalty. So only in these really extreme cases of high-handed offenses would there be an actual death penalty, and that would probably be like once every you know hundred years or something like that. That's how that, it's said. That's how it's always put forth. And I think also that even theonomists like Greg Bonson and maybe even Rush Dooney, I'd have to look uh, to be sure, but uh, and men whom I greatly respect, by the way. And even though I criticize Bonson's views pretty harshly in part of this book, I still highly respect the guy right. and the stuff he gave us is tremendous. But uh, those guys would look upon some of those passages, and I think what they were trying to do is when you read it on the surface, it comes across pretty stark. Do we put to death a guy who breaks the Sabbath? That is you know, violates it in some way, works on the Sabbath day, however that may be. Does that, does that guy have to be put to death? And it, it, it is easy for them because in that passage, I, I forget whether it's um, Numbers 10 or whatever, wherever it's at exactly the address, uh, it talks about this case of this happening. And then right after that, a few passages later, it gives principles for what you do in cases of high-handed sins. So they automatically make the conclusion that this is applying to that Sabbath. But it really doesn't. Uh, If you read on, I mean, first of all, as I said, that's not how the text is written. It says anybody works on the Sabbath day shall be put to death, period. 
And then just not too far after that, it applies this even to kindling a fire in your home mm-hmm. on the Sabbath. So, okay, there's no wiggle room. You shall surely die. If, 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 the, yeah. if the lady's putting the fire up, that counts. And there's no high-handedness in this. It was, you know, maybe the family's cold. I don't know, whatever circumstances could be. It's written the way it's written. The same thing with, with the death penalty for blasphemy. for blasphemy and also for gay sodomy, things of that nature. Uh, when, when it says if a man shall lie with a man as would if he would lie with a woman both shall be put to death and it's emphatic in the hebrew dying they shall die they shall surely be put to death there's no wiggle room here there's no hey this is a maximum penalty there's nothing like that so that's where i get with like greg and some of those guys it seems to me they're trying to ameliorate those passages the the, the harshness of that a bit by saying well no this is only in really extreme cases or high-handed cases this is not requiring us to kill every one of these people. Right. And, and of course, even myself and others were always the first ones to point out, this only happens when there's two witnesses and all that kind of sure. stuff. But right. when you get to the blasphemy laws, it specifically says, even if this person is doing it in secret and mm-hmm. you're the spouse, you have to inform on them. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to, to maintain that, that, uh, that line. That was there. one of the most impactful things that you pointed out to me mm-hmm. because... I've been a theonomist for over 10 years now, and I've heard the same thing over and over and yes. over again. You get in these debates with atheists or, or two kingdom folks or just basically anybody who's not a theonomist, and you're almost trying to explain away some of these facts. I think that's it. And I'm yeah. always like, well, we're not talking about paganism or apostasy. We're talking about like the pagan street preacher with a bullhorn, mm-hmm. you know. And that text, right. that Deuteronomy 13, 6 text is like explicitly, it's like even if your mother, your brother, mm-hmm. like entices you secretly, you should turn him over and get him, essentially kill him. Right. And it's, yeah. it, it's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so nobody today is, even from the, the most extreme covenanter or whatever you want to say it, is calling for today those kinds of enforcements being made applicable if we were to have a theonomy today. Right, right. And my point mm-hmm. is that if you were following the text as it's written, you would be calling it for that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, and then people will say, that's harsh, okay? That is strict, that's harsh. It's it's almost frightening. And and people will say, and I said, what, do you think God's law is harsh then? Is, are you more holy than God? Are you more peaceful or more merciful than God is? But But the truth is, Peter stands up in Acts 15 and says, guys, why are we trying to put this yoke on the necks of the Gentiles, a burden that we could not even bear? Mm -hmm. Okay, so even these early apostles saw this as a burden. There there was something hard about it that it shouldn't have to be. So, And there's more of the the New Testament that's like that. And they weren't putting God on the stand by saying that. Are you going to go turn to Peter and say, well, well, you hate God's law or something? Well, of course we need to be. God's law is not good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Are, are, are you trying to be more merciful than God now just because he wants people circumcised? Come on. so Yeah, and full disclosure, I mean, I'm personally still working through this. This argument of the Sabbath and the, and the public blasphemy, um, just looking at how stringent they were, mm-hmm. does give me cause to sort of relook. I've been a theonomist probably three or four years, and I you know don't change the uh, direction of the ocean yeah. liner overnight, but these are some really interesting issues. And I'll add just at the end of that, God made them harsh for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, great discussion. Um, Man, (laughs) we got a lot of ground to cover, I think, yet, especially. (laughs) I want to hear more, Joel, just in terms of some New Testament examples. I know 
especially in the book of Acts, you have that scene with Ananias and Sapphira, and there's, mm. there's a lot there. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the hand with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6. Amen. Amen. That's Welcome the, back. That's the last part of the Old Testament, isn't it? The very last. Radio. Beginner. You interrupted me. No, it's Welcome cool. back to Cross and Crown Radio. <laughs> yes, the, the last word is carom. Right? Well, sounds made up. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Last, that, the last wait, word wait, of wait. the Old Testament. Now, there's arguments over whether Malachi is actually the last But you last didn't word. write Malachi. Well, so you I'm got confused. a point there. You got if a point you there. made up carom... Wait a minute. Am I, be, so, am I in danger of being here? stripped of theological innovator title right here, right now? It, it's it's looking I, bad. I, I oh man, it, it could be the case. Well, that you know, we're, obviously, we? you know, that's funny. We're joking, but that's like a legitimate thing you hear. I've heard it several times. This is just something Joel McDermott made up. We don't hear this in the pulpits. You know, this carom thing. So clearly, it's a novelty. Yeah, we have to address this. Can oh, we just talk? I about mean, this? It, even in some of the critiques that were written and published and endorsed by several you know, well-known names within the theonomy movement. Uh, it was said explicitly, something Joel made up out of whole cloth or something to that effect. And, you know, nobody in 2,000 years has ever heard of Karam until McDermott came along. Well, actually, that's not quite true. You know, I mean, just reading from the prophets here, it was kind of the threat hanging out over the intertestamental period that uh, if they didn't get their act together um, and listen to this guy who was coming, which is John the Baptist, of course, that God was going to come on the great day of the Lord which we all here understand is AD 70 right. in the first century, uh, that he was going to come and smite the land with a curse. Uh, and by the way, this is, this is something that shows up in the book we can talk about later maybe or not. But uh, there's a, an intense eschatological strand that runs through the whole Karim doctrine. Now, of course, since it's a Genesis principle and a Revelation principle, it's a prophetic principle, and, and here you see a perfect example. But no, I mean, it shows up in the prophets. We mentioned Ezra and Nehemiah earlier. They were dealing with it. And you actually see it in the New Testament, too, as you guys will see when you get to those chapters, that uh, the New Testament word for carom is anathema. And Paul uses it, but it was also being used 
among the Jews in John's day, as he's writing while Jesus walked the earth, that certain people didn't want to do this because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogues. Mm -hmm. That was the Jewish application of Karim or anathema at the time. And there's a tremendous body of writing from the rabbinical texts on this. And uh, I have a whole chapter in the book. Uh, I think it's four or 5,000 words long. Nothing but the historical usage all down through history. So the early church, the medieval era, the rabbis, and then it's picked up by some of the reformers. It's picked up by Francis Turretin and enters the canon, if you will, of reform, Dutch reform theology after that because Bavink picks it up. It gets into Louis Burkhoff, which is funny to me. All these people saying Joel McDermott made it up. I can understand if it's buried in ancient rabbinical texts that mm. nobody ever saw it until I wrote about it. But it, it, all you do is pick up Burkhoff's systematic theology, which is as ubiquitous as anything, yeah. you know, and read the section on excommunication right there. Boom, carom. And this was practiced by the Jews and it's taken from Nehemiah 10, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it's right there. Well, I was going to say, you know, we joke about it that, you know, haha, you know, you made it up. But we're, when you were going through the actual history of it, you mentioned the rabbinical and then on into, you know, the reformers and so forth. Were yeah. you surprised the degree to which they actually did cover it? Uh no, I wasn't. I was happy to find it. I was more afraid that I would not be able to find it, you know, explicitly. Right. But maybe maybe get kind of uh, manifestations of it in the doctrine. The great find was going through uh, George Gillespie's Aaron's Rod Blossoming. And he's, you know, it's a very interesting, they always say politics is strange bedfellows. But sometimes in theology it works like that too, because he's really arguing something entirely different. He's mm -hmm. arguing against Erastianism which is the belief that the state is the only legitimate government. There is no church government, mm -hmm. and, and thus there's no such thing as excommunication. Mm -hmm. That was Erastius's point, one of them. And George Gillespie is at pains to show, no, there is a separate church government, and it has the power of excommunication. And he starts digging up all these rabbinical texts, and, and he, he pulls out tons of Christian Hebraists, uh, John Selden and many, many others, to show, no, look, they're all talking about the Hebrew doctrine of Karim <laughs> over and over. And this he is has, a hardcore covenanter. Yeah. And he calls yeah. them his 15 witnesses that he's uh, <laughs> adduced and uh, he's put together for these guys. And hmm. so, yeah, and this, and this guy's a covenanter and he still believes those laws. So he hasn't put the theology of it together yet. Right. But he's showing that there's a doctrine of Karim out there and that it's an excommunication doctrine, not a civil punishment doctrine. So th this is very helpful. And then... <laughs> This this was just mind-blowing to me when I started reading and looking for the doctrine in some of our own people who would call themselves theonomists. And, and in Joe Moorcraft's writing and in uh, Phil Kaiser's writings both, I found people talking about Karim as they go through these passages, arguing especially because it's dealing with some of the, like the Canaanite, uh, I hate the word genocide, but that's what's always used, um, the Canaanite conquests, and uh, this is over and over stated. This is a special thing. This is not repeated. This is this is the Karim principle. They use those words explicitly, and so I'm like, right here, everybody's calling me an innovator. And it's not only in Reformed doctrine; it's in our own Reconstructionist writers. So it's just mind blowing how uh, you know unread some people are, and yet willing to say things that are just extreme. Yeah. It is. It is. And and I am, you know, it's sort of funny, but I, I'm less interested in, in when people start going down that path. It's just sort of tune, tune that part out. What I'm interested in is is the hardcore hermeneutical issues that you address. And, and that's a really fascinating a aspect of the book. And you get into it with directly with Greg Bonson, who we all mm -hmm. love and appreciate and will continue to no matter, you know, after this discussion. But specifically with Greg Bonson, you know, 
you talk about the Bonson rule. And it's mm-hmm. this famous hermeneutical approach where basically uh, he says laws, basically I'm paraphrasing, laws remain uh, unchanged unless they're explicitly abrogated in the new. Mm-hmm. And that's his approach. And so do you depart from that hermeneutical approach or hermeneutical approach or do you have a, what is your take uh, on Bonson's approach there? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, one point is that Bonson himself is not consistent with it. Um, we can talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But the Bonson rule is, as you said, that laws continue unless they're explicitly abrogated. The problem is there's so few laws explicitly abrogated mm-hmm. that, as we said earlier, the death penalty for the Sabbath breakers and, and a very strict one at that. This is why early on when people started writing critics criticisms and I started kind of mentally preparing for some of this later, which turns out was two years later. But um, I went into the uh, two of the theonomy groups on Facebook and posted a poll. How many of you believe the Sabbath death penalty for the Sabbath still applies today? Because most theonomists don't. Right. Even Rush Dooney explicitly says this does not apply. North says this no longer applies. They all have reasons for why they say that. But... Uh, they, none of them can point to a place where it's explicitly said the death penalty no, no longer applies. Hmm. However, it is still an ecclesiastical law, and you could be excommunicated for violating it. You know, hmm. Nobody has anything developed on that anywhere at all that I've seen. So and, it proves too much. Yeah, it, I mean, I'd, I'd say North probably comes closer than anybody. Rush Dooney kind of picked out a passage in passing in, in Romans 14, let no one judge you according to Sabbath. Maybe, maybe that's not Romans 14, maybe that's Colossians or whatever, but... Uh, the point is, it was it was that verse that he used to hmm. to make his point. Bonson, however, I f- I found kind of giving evidence on both sides, and I listened to some class lectures he gave in you know those old audios that you can barely hear. But uh, he's going down through the list of laws, and he gets to the Sabbath, and he says, "What about the Sabbath?" Hmm. And he says, "Is there any reason why this death penalty would no longer apply today?" And you can hear this the stillness in the mm-hmm. classroom. And <laughs> oh, he gosh. says, Crickets. He, he actually says, I don't see that there is. So I take from that that he believed, or at least at that time in the 70s, I think those course lectures were given, that he believed uh, it still applied. Now, I think I've read other places where he kind of went the other way on that. I'm not sure. The point is, oh, and the, the polls, by the way, in, on Facebook, both of them came out overwhelmingly against, but there were a handful in each case, like 12 or 13 people who said, no, that still applies. Hmm. But uh, it's still 10%, maybe 20% at the most. Uh, so so what I'm trying to say is nobody believes this, for the most part, except that handful of people, this still applies. But Bonson's rule would necessitate that it applies mm-hmm. because it's not explicitly. Okay, what about the daughter who's caught not being a virgin on her wedding night? Uh, when she when she was expected she was a virgin. Well, I mean, that's not just a death penalty. She has to be ceremonially executed, taken to her father's front porch. This sentence has to be read that she has defiled her father's house by whoring in the land or something like that. And then she's stoned with stones on the right there, I mean, on the spot. I mean, just imagine um, having your daughter out here on the front porch with all your neighbors sitting out on the porches watching. <laughs> Well, here we, here we, she's been whoring around, guys, and throw the stones, go. and you, now you've got blood stains on your porch. But it's just crazy. It's insane. And I can't, I can't imagine that was even ever practiced in ancient Israel. You know, the same thing with the rebellious son. And we make all kinds of excuses for that. Well, he was a grown son. He was a glutton and a drunkard. This is about incorrigibility and look at the effects on society. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's your son, man. Okay. You, you're killing him with stones. 
Because he's a glutton and a drunkard. No, I, I've, I've known men who've gone to the utmost extreme not to even let their sons get caught. I mean, it's because there's natural love there, you know. Right. Anyway, this I'm rambling on about that, but these laws, they were they were typological. The the bride who was supposed to be a virgin on her wedding night and was not was Old Testament Israel. So that when the day of the Lord came, she was not spotless and undefiled. She was a whore. She was the whore of Babylon. And God stones her on the front porch, literally destroys the temple in the process of doing that. Okay, this is all typological. It's ceremonial. It's clear. But nowhere in the New Testament is it explicitly repealed, if you're going to follow Bonson's rule. And you can find others like that. So then people will fast forward to uh, something like Hebrews, and say, well, there was, a, there was a tabernacle, and there was Moses, and there was the priesthood, and all this stuff. And, and all of these things, uh, are, they're all gone now because they passed away, and Christ has come replace them. And I'm saying, well, okay, that explicitly mentions a few things. When you take from that and apply it to whole types of things, like the entirety of the tabernacle system with categories. everything in it, like the whole temple. Yeah, there are whole categories. So, so it's completely unfair to turn back on me then and say, oh, well, you're saying these whole categories of things. <laughs> well, like, what did you do with Bonson? Bonson did the same thing. He, he made these umbrellas and then said they were explicitly mentioned as being repealed, but yeah. they weren't. So, mm-hmm. so my system is at least, I don't want to call him dishonest. It's more consistent in that regard. And, and, and that's the way it should be to begin with because so much of that Old Testament Law is just imagery and typology, and they are types of things. They are categories that are given to us. There is a land, a set of land laws. There's a set of seed laws, and those, these things overlap in many cases. And that's what is abolished and replaced in Christ until the seed should come, and then the, the high priest and, and all of that kind of stuff. And we explain those in Bounds of Love in here too as well. The, the point is, even though Bonson gave this rule, and by the way, it was agreed, I mean, that was the rule that many reformers used, and many of the Westminster divines used that same rule explicitly. So it was, I call it the Bonson rule just for convenience in this debate, but even Bonson didn't really stick to the Bonson rule. And I don't know anybody else who really does stick to the Bonson rule except a handful of really extreme radical people. You know, I'm not saying they're wrong because they're extreme radical, but I think they're wrong exegetically and in biblical theology. And I guess my point would be Bonson wasn't consistent with it because you can't really be consistent with it. Yeah, to me it seems like there's three options. You've got the, you repeal everything unless it's explicitly and specifically called out. You repeal any law unless it's specifically called out. That's option Mm -hmm. one. Option two is you go to the New Covenant theology where it's all gone unless it's repeated in the New. And we definitely don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. But it seems like there is a third option. And I think it actually falls more in line with the Reformers' general equity principle. Mm -hmm. You're looking at categories of law. And I think that's what you're doing. And, And I see in the book you talking about, okay, so now how do we... If we're not doing, you know, if, if even Bonson isn't consistent with his own rule, and if we want to find a hermeneutical principle that's going to be consistent, what are we going to use? And so that's where I want to, I know you talk about eye for an eye and those kinds of things, but what do you use to determine what is transcendent and what is um, ceremonial? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the eye for eye principle is certainly one of those things, but the Karen principle is absolutely the, the, the far and away the main thing that's used. Now, I've also used some of uh, the work of Gary North in his commentary on Leviticus. He, he answered this question specifically in interacting with Vern Poitras. 
that because Poitras asked that question exactly. How how do we know which ones abide and which one don't? Right. What what are the theological principles for determining these things? He struggled with it himself in his book on the shadow of Christ and the law of Moses, which is a great book. I mean, he answers a lot of things. Uh, and by the way, he also talks about the Karen principle. That's one of the best. <laughs> Just another innovator. one of the best parts of the book, by the way. Poitras. We're talking Westminster Theological Seminary. Yes, Vern so, Poitras. So did he make it up? No, no. <laughs> uh, and and North said anything that's tied to the priesthood, he called it the priestly laws. Anything that's tied to the the seed, um, and that's taken in different ways. Uh, he shows that, I, and I agree with that because what is what was the seed? The seed to come was Christ, and, and that is the most holy. He is mm-hmm. the most holy one. So. What I'm, I'm able to show with the Karen principle is that each one of these things is actually part of the Karen principle. It's part of the things in the Old Testament, Old Covenant economy that were the most holy things. Mm. And so anywhere that was, was true, Christ transforms these in the New Covenant. And the image that, I, I, don't, I didn't read this from North until later, before this book, and I incorporated it in, in a chapter, but I, he and I arrived at this independently and this concept of the law being buried with Christ and then resurrected again with him. Hmm. And just as he is transformed when he's resurrected, so is the law. So that the shadows of the old covenant, the, the what Paul later calls, uh, with the help of the King James translators, the weak and beggarly elements mm-hmm. of the law. Uh, those things, the, the feasts, the, the tabernacle system, the priesthood, the sacrifices, etc., those things are all, of course, they're fulfilled in Christ and done away with, replaced with his more glorious version of it. We don't have a stack of blocks for a temple anymore. We have a living stack of blocks, the body of Christ. And Peter says that explicitly. And But then there are also things in the law, like in Hebrews 8 specifically says, in the new covenant, won't be like that old one that they broke, but I will write my law on their hearts. Well, I know he's not writing stack of concrete blocks temple on our hearts. That's done away with in Christ, you know, but the things that do abide are the things that pertain to personal holiness, your behavior. What, what does it mean to love God and to love your, love your neighbor as yourself? And all the principles of justice that come out of that in the church, in, in the state, in your family, etc. And of course, you know, we could go on all night talking about each case of those. But uh, when it comes to civil justice, it's the eye for an eye principle, the lex yep. talionis. That is why things there are death penalties in the Old Covenant that, that were built on that principle and not the Karen principle. Yep. This is important to be said. Both of these things are important to be said because critics in some cases have said, Joel's done away with the death penalty. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. When it's pertaining to murder or to rape or to kidnapping, there was no carom mentioned anywhere in the text. Right. Uh, it, it, it was about justice, simple justice, eye for an eye justice, taking a life for a life. And, and, and yes, kidnapping someone was considered taking their life. Raping a woman was considered taking her life. In fact, the, the text specifically says that this is like a man who lies in wait to take another man's life. So the, these are clear. Um, but then uh, having, having that... Uh, set of principles also is just as important because what's happened so often, like you said, there are three options. You got the new covenant theology option. Well, some people have said, well, my, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the law transforming is just like new covenant theology. It gets rid of all the law. I'm like, they're just, why don't you just read the book? I mean, that's so so obviously not the case. Not only do I not say that it doesn't follow, it can't follow, but also it's, it's, it's the, 
the position basically that Meredith Klein took when he basically said the entire Old Testament. And he had a kind of a dispensational ethic on that regard, even though he wasn't a dispensationalist, that uh, if it wasn't repeated in the New Testament, we didn't need it. And then, of course, those people go through and find the Ten Commandments repeated in several places and say, right. see, we've got all we need, so let's go. And hmm. But, uh, you know, Klein, the problem is Bonson has is, is got a principle. I'm not saying Bonson was wrong about all the applications. In many cases, he wasn't. I'm talking if you consistently apply his principle, it does too much. And if you go with Klein, you get rid of all the law mm-hmm. if you're consistent with mm-hmm. it. So we need to have a principle that is consistent with the text of Scripture yep. and the biblical theology of Scripture so that you you know, it, it not only get the, the thing right, you harmonize systematic and biblical theology when you do it. Yeah. And that's the strongest argument that can be made, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Well, it seems like neither side is being consistent at all. Whether it's the Kleinians or whether it's the Bonsonites or whatever, yeah. you'd like to and call and that's out of necessity, right? Because both of them say these things and they they want to rest content with those principles, but then the moment someone the other side says, "Well, what about this?" and they know that doesn't doesn't jive, and so you got to cover it up. When they're, they're arguing so, against the Karen principle, like, they don't like, even believe in their own version of theonomy. No, yeah, they, they, none of them consistently apply it, whether it's theonomy or not theonomy. It's rarely ever consistently applied. Yeah, it's kind of wallpaper theology, and they got these patches. They're trying to put it up and make it look nice but it's it's a it's crazy <laughs> you missed a spot yeah over there. Missed, you missed a spot over there Whoa, what, what am i supposed to do and then i also want to say neither are you calling for the end of penalties for blasphemy sodomy you're calling for the continuance of ecclesiastical penalties absolutely for so we need to make that distinction because right, that's, that's another thing i heard on facebook is that joel wants to just make these things like not a sin at oh. all and no punishment whatsoever no recourse whatsoever yeah. there are people determined to believe that i am an anarchist of the most extreme definition of that word antinomian. so not, yeah i'm an antinomian of course been called that for a while but you know, this is just, he's just working closer to pure anarchy. I'm like, okay, first of all, these critics aren't serious thinkers. So I, I'm to the point now where I think I've gotten what utility we can out of them, and I'm just going to move on. Okay. So uh, hopefully they'll come around, but, you know, you have that takes prayer. When you're dealing with someone who refuses to be honest with what you've said, let alone honest with where the text goes in what you've said, then... Uh, you know you're dealing with someone who's probably got personal problems, yeah, like uh, personality um, issues, um, tribalism, you know, uh, probably maybe abused by their father or something like that, or something of that nature. That you know, we we see this a lot. But anyway, I won't, I won't elaborate on that. But it's it's it's. I, I think you're dealing with a lot of people who have personal and maybe even mental health issues Mm -hmm. in some cases so i mean this is the problem with facebook you know you can have a fruitful dialogue you can have a challenging debate with some people and then you can have a mudslinging contest and it's crazy somebody once said uh you know you deserve better critics i i I truly believe that (laughs) that joel you do deserve better critics now i will say like i appreciated martin salbridi's uh tone and treatment of uh, his critique on your book and he actually pointed out in his critique that yes there are some of your detractors that just miss it and just go too far and just aren't real serious. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yeah, yeah. But um, you actually address in your book a lot of the critiques in that that have come back, and some of them are better than others, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe just I know we don't want to give away the book, but 
maybe just talk for a second about those critiques and the answers that you that you put forth. Sure. Uh, well, th- there are three chapters that deal just with Bonson, and I consider those responses to critiques. And, and there are some actually some, on the surface of it anyway, some pretty challenging to cr- critiques to overcome. Uh, because he was, Bonson was tenacious. When he made an argument, he went as deep and thoroughly as he could, and he's, he's hard to fight, so to speak. You know, it's, you can be technically better than your opponent in the boxing ring, but he can still get you with that hard punch, you know, if you're not watching. And, and Bonson is pretty strong in some of these cases. But the pro, it, but if you follow through scripture, like on the, the uh, well, I, I can't take all the time to make the arguments, but the, there are places where the rest of the New Testament shows the opposite of how he's using it to make his argument. And you can you can read that. But three whole chapters just on Bonson, and I think that's important. Um Martin's critique, Martin Celebrity's critique, was very fair and even-handed. He's mm-hmm. a nice guy. Um, to, for a long time, I've considered him a friend. And, and he's a smart guy, and he writes well. Uh, at least he wrote this well. And he, uh, the critique had some very strong points. And there was actually one point in there. Uh, there's one point in there that I kind of have a feeling he thinks is extremely strong. And... Um, I just kind of leaned into that, you know. It's kind of like the, the, the what are they, the Navy SEALs are trained to run into the danger. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I thought. All right, here we go. I can't wait to get to that part of the book. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't got there yet. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the there was one argument he mentioned, and it had to do with what happens when you take away kind of the the overhanging threat of the civil punishment from out of the land. That it kind of encourages criminals. And, and, and so civil disobedience is going to increase and lawlessness in the land is going to increase. And you have these, these children of Baal that are spoken of all through the Old Testament that uh, they will increase and take over society. And the next thing you have gay pride parades down your, you know, your, your street and whatnot. And uh, I heard that criticism not just from him but from many other people. So I wanted to address it head on. And the, the problem is it, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny and it and the bible gives us an historical witness there are several lines of response to this and one of them is the bible gives us a line of witness when we did have those laws in place (laughs) we had those laws in place and it still didn't stop the sons of baal they still increased um because the thing that was missing that really impacts those people is the sending of the holy spirit Mm -hmm. into the body of christ that is the one thing that is different about the new covenant than the old. You get rid of that stack of blocks and all those threats and punishments that allegedly were supposed to keep everybody in line, but they don't. And you all have raised kids. You know, you can only threaten spanking so many times before it loses its effect. <laughs> and we might clown with ourselves and kid ourselves into thinking it does have a greater effect. And if I think maybe if you do it right and you have a good relationship with your kid, it will. But if you raise your children to only to be a response to a threat, you're basically raising a slave, okay? And that kid's going to grow up when they're 20 or 30 years old and have a slave mentality. And we can elaborate on that. And God didn't want that. You get to the new covenant, he says, you're no longer slaves. You don't need the schoolmaster to hold your hand anymore. You are now sons. The time has come. And so there's a whole different outlook. Instead of using threats of punishment and whatnot, we use inspiration and working from the inside out. Now, that doesn't negate the civil use of the law. That's still there. It's just that we shouldn't put so much emphasis on it as a kind of a cure for society because it's not. It's a tool of dominion for society, 
But but the moment we start looking at it as the cure-all and this thing, if we if we dare get rid of it, we're going to have a problem. No, uh, we need to put much more emphasis on on what you might think. Well, of course, the Holy Spirit in itself, but uh, holistic forms of healing. Um, I mean, the, like well, we can get off into all kinds of applications. The war on drugs, uh, as opposed to something that's more like a restorative model of helping addicts. I mean, we've seen this work yeah. in in many places. So we could go on and on and on with those kind of applications. The sons of Baal problem doesn't stand up to scrutiny in the text or in practice. And it's I mean, foundationally, you're talking about the gospel, regeneration, um, healing spiritually, mm-hmm. and that working itself out, you know, physically, you know, physiologically, et cetera. That has way more power than the law being an external force mm-hmm. on you. Because, I mean, you kind of alluded to it. That's one of the things I think some critics have said. You know, you now you, you don't, the civil magistrate cannot protect the family anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this, this is a straw man. I mean, it's kind of just thrown out there. Um, but the greatest protection of the family is holiness and godliness in the home. Right. And that spilling over into society as we serve and love and give of ourselves um, to people and not just you know, let's round up all the gays and kill them. Exactly. That gets back to what we opened up with uh, on that point. It seems like there are some people in the movement that's all they think about when it comes to Christian reconstruction. The only tool in the toolbox is the hammer or the sword, if you will. And so let's just break that out and make sure we have this sword wielded so we can take care of the gays and the adulterers and everything else. And that is quote unquote, protecting the family. Right. And you will, if you want a proliferation of homosexuals in society, that's the way to go about it. Because when you have a top-down, uh, patriarchal, threatening society, and, and sons are raised with these looming threats and father looming kind of threatening father figures all over the place, uh, you're going to run into people who are raised to be intimidated and frightened inside. And, and I don't want to get too deep into that because we'll get all kind of hate mail from homosexuals. <laughs> but uh, if it happens, it happens. But uh, I believe that's part of what the proliferation of people who don't know how to love their wives and don't have strength in themselves and and uh, and turn into homosexuality and that kind of stuff yeah. uh, comes from. I, I, I think I think strongly, and you see this historically in strongly patriarchal societies: ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Rome yeah. um, even in the the American. Uh, uh, probably not so much in the American South that we know of. At least it's not as well documented. But uh, anywhere those aristocratic models were put in, you have uh, knowledge of it. And anyway, so so those things happen, and we need to be cognizant of that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I really appreciate about the book how it it makes the focus on um, appreciating the law of God for what it truly is. So what I mean by that is. Um, you know, we tend to look at as theonomists and we love God's law. We tend to look at the law of God. Um, well, we, we should be careful not to think that we're, we're all about the Mosaic covenant, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the critique that we frequently get is, uh, they just want to take us back to the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. We're like, no, 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 we don't. Right. But we need to be clear about, we affirm, we don't obey any law just because it's Mosaic. And we affirm that the Mosaic covenant is over with. All of those laws that were, you know, about uh, equal scales, proportionate penalties, eye for an eye, those are um, lovely principles of justice that apply at any time 
before the giving of the law to Moses, after you know the old covenant's over, they're transcendent. Mm-hmm. That law of God, that holistic transcendent law of God, you know, is is what we are um, are for. We're not trying to go back to the mosaic system. So when we say, just to wrap this up, when we say that the mosaic law order as a whole system, ceremonial combined with the civil and the the Ten Commandments is done away with. We are not saying that all these laws that were given under that paradigm are given away with. We're talking about the law order as a whole, but there are many commands in that law that were not dependent on that law order. Yeah. So I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, they weren't produced yeah. by... Yeah, absolutely. There is a distinction to be had there. Administration. And here's another aspect we don't talk about with the law of God. And I was just up in Maine talking to a group of men in a church on... Uh, some issues of ba- basically being a better husband under the guise of teaching them about the problems with wives and <laughs> it got them all you know, <laughs> eager to come and then really hammered them. But including me, by the way, I'm always the most hammered from that. <clears throat> Maybe I shouldn't say I was hammered publicly, <laughs> but that's not what I meant. But anyway, anyway, so I'm talking to these guys and I'm making the point that, cause I got questions about theonomy from some of them and then making the point that theonomy is God's law. Okay. What does Jesus say the the most important of those laws are? To love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. All right. Just those two, you've got the rest of your life cut out for you. Okay. And we can talk about civil justice. I'm big on that, but you've got to work on self-government. And we don't have, where are all the theonomic books on self-government? I mean, I know Rush Dooney had a couple. Rush Dooney had uh, The Cure of Souls and he had the one on psychology. What was it? The Revolt oh, Against Maturity. Revolt against maturity. Uh, and some other essays and whatnot here and there. But there Which aren't are many. Awesome, by the way. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I meet a lot of theonomist young men and even just reformed young men who, to them, there's this kind of macho thing about masculinity and, oh, let's grow our beards out and have beer and eat bacon. And it's like this, I don't know how you it, it's just machismo. And they're turning masculinity into a kind of a, a kitsch thing or like a, um, what would you call it, a, a stereotype or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is I think we really begin to believe that after a while. And if you really back up into what biblical masculinity is, I'm talking about the law of God. You hear things like, greater is he that rules his own spirit than he that takes a city. So the, the outward strength is not really where it's at. And, and we could go on and on and on with things like that. Um, Paul says, my, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. So Paul wasn't afraid to be weak and things of that nature. There's so many principles in God's law that tell us counterintuitive things about how we should live our lives, about how we should relate to our wives and relate to the weak and uh, exalt the poor and the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and, and other issues like that that... Mm-hmm that are calling us to do things that so much of the conservative and much theonomic world today would call liberal. And, and it's just because, no, you haven't taken the law of God seriously. Mm-hmm. All right, I've spent years writing against socialism, writing against Jim Wallace and Sojourners and those guys that want Christian socialism, so to speak. And, they, and their catchphrases are always the widow and the orphan, the sojourner. Take care of the poor. And then they appeal to these government programs to do so. Okay, I was the first one in line. I'm talking about in my time. Obviously, Chilton did this and North did all this. But I I was the first one here among us who stood up and said, no, the civil government doesn't do that. That's not the civil. Okay, but then what we do after that is we drop the discussion altogether. Yay, we beat the socialists. All right, we we shut them up on that one, didn't we? Okay, let's go talk about civil government some more. Um, 
But we don't talk about the poor and the widow and the orphan and the abused wife. Uh, while Meanwhile, there are power structures in place uh, that basically protect the abusers in churches, in church governments, in many other places. And just the other day I saw a quotation, I don't know how about the context, but there was a, a well-known pastor in the patriarchy movement talking about, you never apologize in these situations. And I'm like, that is idiotic. Yeah. That that is antinomian. If that is autonomy and pagan, if anything ever was. Well, you know, it's, so, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I yeah. Just to interject just for a second, there's so much emphasis when we're t- talking about the qualifications for an elder. Yeah. I was like, it can't be a woman. Can't be a woman. You can't. And I, you know, I agree. Yeah. Like, I don't think women should be ordained as elders in churches. But what about being correctable? Yeah. Like, there's so much lack of integrity. <laughs> and when you're going to publicly go out and say, never apologize, as an elder in Reformed Church, mm. you are no more qualified than the woman. You're mm. no more qualified than Beth Moore. Yeah. Period. It's true. That is true. And and we're that way on many of these principles, I guess, is my point, that we, we use theonomy to bash the liberals and everyone else, but then we stop the discussion and don't answer the question. And I wrote a long time ago in 2009 or 10 in God versus Socialism, that if we're going to do that, the liberals have already won. Mm-hmm. Because, first of all, Republicans and conservatives do support socialism when it comes to the military and the public schools and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, Uh-oh. the liberals <laughs> meanwhile, the liberals are talking about health care and how can I help the poor. Okay, sorry, they got the moral high road. They yeah. got the moral high ground here. And over time, you're going to lose. So we need to start those discussions from God's law. That's, this is my point. That's God's law. We ought to be mobilizing to take care of it. But we don't. We just ignore the conversation. So there are many areas, self-government, charity, stuff like that, that we should be involved in as part of God's law. Yeah. There's like three main issues that will always get yes and amens from some quarters of the conservative reconstructionist uh, realm. You know, if we talk about making tax taxes you know lower or or eliminate them or if we want to end the welfare state and abolish abortion yeah yeah but as soon as we talk about you know open up the immigration be Mm -hmm. welcoming to the sojourner end mass incarceration uh you know bring the troops home in some in some instances you know then it's a different uh no law god let's not talk about that there's red socialism and there's blue socialism and right that's that's what it is yeah Yeah. i mean we're getting a little off topic here too i'll add to that though but because (laughs) The people who are who are worried about immigrants coming over, taking our jobs, and bleeding the country dry through welfare. Okay, if you allowed that times 10 to happen for the next 100 years, it would probably do nothing to compare to the deficits Trump keeps running up. Yeah. Now, Obama did it too, but so did George Bush and all these other guys. Okay, so let's acknowledge the deficits we're racking up every year by far outweigh the so-called welfare that so-called immigrants are going to take. Um, so you're the ones bankrupting the country. Your anti-immigration guy is bankrupting the country faster than uh, 10 times the amount of immigrants could yeah, do. The Pentagon probably yeah. loses more money in materials <laughs> yeah. every year than yeah. it's going to yeah. be wasted Quote, unquote, on materials. And yeah. uh, Department of Defense spending, you know, right. billions. Just, mm-hmm. just tanks to keep and rats disappearing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, just to anyway. kind of go back to that, Joel, you know, Romans 13, love is a fulfillment of the law. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we, we say you know, love is a fulfillment of the law. So I'm going to treat you lawfully. And that means, you know, X, Y, Z crime you committed, you're dead. And while there may be a place for that, and Mm -hmm. I believe, you know, we agree that there is for certain things. um, Let's get back to 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? the entirety of your being, your mind, right? All these things, your strength. And that is an emotional thing. Yeah. You know, I, we've had some conversations just yeah. um, personally about that. Uh, our emotions are involved in terms of love and compassion and brokenness. Mm-hmm. And, and if they're not, then Jesus was terrible at it. Right. Mm. And I made this point, I, I had this in my notes the other day and didn't make it actually, but when Jesus is excoriating the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he says, Woe unto you because you tithe on mint and anise and cumin, you know, the spices out of the herb garden. You know, the, Can you imagine someone so fastidious that they're going and clipping little bits off their dill? From, mm-hmm. you know, this is one-tinth of my dill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just brilliant. But then he says, But you ignore the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Yeah. Okay, so wait a minute. Mercy is a, is a law. Mm. Okay, you're getting into compassion, and that is a law of God. Because when theonomists talk about the law of God and want to hammer home, they want to say, no, this is what the civil government is allowed to do. It's not allowed to get involved in compassion. And, and my response is, well, that's true, but it also is commanding you to be compassionate. Amen. <laughs> the law of God is to be compassionate. So what, what we see so much, especially in American history, is an attempt to marginalize, uh, an attempt to use the law to say, I don't have to deal with those people. So, And what God does in history is he judges us through those means. Mm-hmm. So many people, including Bonson and others, pointed out that the Civil Rights Act is against God's law because it's forcing property owners to serve people. You know, And, and, and I, I'm like, technically, I agree with that. However... I also understand that when you don't follow the laws of compassion and love to your neighbor, God's going to judge your society. Yeah. So we're all under a form of servitude now mm-hmm. to the federal government because we can't get it right in our hearts to begin with. So, and, and my other message to the people who keep making that argument is, look, I, it, doesn't make any, it doesn't matter. You cannot ignore the core of God's law and then jump over here to fringe, I shouldn't say fringe, but more more kind of applicational principles of it and say, well, this is God's law, this is God's law, ignoring the core of it. You're just cutting off, I don't know what the phrase is, I'm tired, but <laughs> you're cutting off something important, okay? And and it's not going to end well for you. And and then they, they rail against the liberals, they rail against the liberals. And I know you need to re- repent before God because that's what's coming. It's judgment. Yeah. You're under judgment because of your own failures. I think that point about the law and mercy is so important. I just mm-hmm. finished preaching on Jeremiah. Literally, the southern kingdom, Judah, was exiled, was kicked out of the of the land. And one of the main reasons was they were not doing justice to the foreigner, the alien, the stranger, mm-hmm. the sojourner. It's like this God takes this stuff extremely seriously. Right. And the good news of the Messiah to come, in part, was that his kingdom that he would establish would end up doing good to the sojourner and provide, you know, yes. relief to them. And here's a great, just ties it right back in, because that is, is, is applied right there in Revelation 22, 1 through 3. talks about the new heavens and new earth, the, 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 uh, this new Jerusalem, in which there's a river flowing out, and the, on each side of the river are the trees of life. And, the, and, and this is a Karen passage, because... I think Revelation 22.3 quotes Zechariah 14 and 11, which is a Karim passage. In that day there shall be no more curse. That's the word Karim in Hebrew. 
And that's what we're promised when with these trees growing on the side of the, the rivers. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the, the nations. nations. Mm-hmm. So th- this is giving us an image of what the church is supposed to be now. Mm-hmm. Okay, We're supposed to be healing the nations. Well, we don't even want to look at the nations. We want to turn them around. And some people even say they want to shoot at them from the wall. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. So... Um, you know how are we how are we going to pretend that we're Christian and that our we have Christian families and churches and all that kind of stuff when we can't follow the God's law? So it's amazing that Karim can have you know we think of it as sort of as a up here above our head theological issue. It actually has really great application. Mm-hmm. It's oh it's yeah. it's everywhere now. Yeah, that's the yeah. Thing. <laughs> just like and I'm hoping that know. the book will be everywhere now. <laughs> Everyone's <Yeah>. shelf, <laughs> yeah. which is for sale on. Well, you can find it on Amazon.com. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, good deal. Good deal. Um, man, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging in some more, Joel. I, I love Bounds of Love, um, and I'm looking forward to a, a consuming fire. So on Amazon, you can find your work. I know you have a second edition of Bounds of Love there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the Problem of Slavery, also second edition. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, listeners can find your stuff on Amazon. Where else can they connect with you? Uh, well, personally, they can get me on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Um, if people want to support some of my work, I had some requests from some people. Can you use Patreon? So I have a Patreon page. They can find me there. And if people want to support me directly, they can just message me on social media and we can set that up with PayPal or something else. All right. Sounds great. Well, as always, you can find our podcast on iTunes. You can find it on Spotify. Um, we'll post the links on Facebook and you can connect with us there. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate you. you. Thank you, brother. Thank Thank you guys for for coming all the way up here and and, uh, talking with us. So, hey, that's it for us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, Jesus is king. There's no neutrality, no exile. And heaven forbid we have surrender. No surrender. Mm. I should be content in this stage, right? Isn't that what Paul taught? According to your precious Puritans. Oh, you get it, but you don't get it. Oh, then we can go back to an America that once were founded on Christian values. They don't build preachers like they used to. Oh, the richness of their revelation. It must be nice to not have to consider race. It must be nice to have time to contemplate the stars. Pastor, your colorless rhetoric is a cop-out. You see my skin, and I see yours. And they are beautiful, fearfully, and wonderfully, divinely designed. Uniqueness. Shouldn't we celebrate that rather than act like it ain't there? I get it. Your Puritans got it. But... How come the things the Holy Spirit showed them in the Valley of Vision didn't compel them to knock on their neighbor's door and say, you can't own people. Your precious Puritans were not perfect. You romanticized them as if they were inerrant, as if the skeletons in their closet was pardoned due to their hard work and tobacco growth, as if abolitionists were not racist and just pro-union, as if God only spoke to white boys with epic beards. You know Jesus didn't really look